So I want to continue this study in uh, in First Peter. We're in the sixth imperative, and I've spent a little more time in this because this is so applicable to all of us. It's particularly applicable to uh, me during these difficult days, and uh, I know a lot of you. So if you will turn to uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, I just want to commence with chapter 12. We've already looked this up. Uh, we've already written this down as far as uh, an outline form. I have it in, in uh, point number four, and then I've got uh, four points under it, A, B, C, D, if you were uh, keeping notes. Uh, let's look at chapter one, uh, 4, verse 12. Beloved, uh, don't think it's strange concerning the trial, which is to trial you as some strange thing is happening to you, but rejoice to the extent that you're a partaker of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you'll be glad with exceeding joy. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. On their part, he's blasphemed, but on your part, he's glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a gossip in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God keep committing their souls to him in doing good because he is our faithful creator. So as you, if you remember, as we discussed last week, we really emphasize that we should not consider it strange considering the painful ordeals of life. We shouldn't be astonished by this. For Christ himself suffered, he told us we would suffer. This scripture throughout the whole book has told us that the purpose of suffering is for his glory, that the purpose of suffering is for our edification, for character building, for developing hope and and, and perseverance within us, and it is purposeful. He limits the suffering, and he is sovereign over the suffering, and he is teaching us about him during the suffering. Remember that the people uh, that Peter was writing this epistle to were suffering, and he was encouraging them uh, that through the suffering that God would be glorified, and ultimately we would be uh, rescued through the suffering if we continue to be obedient to him. And we talked about that in great detail. We talked about the fiery trial. We talked about that word fiery is perosis, that we get pyrotechnic, where we get pyromaniac from. It, it means fire and it means painful fire. So the struggles we go through, Peter is not uh, glazing over them. Uh, he is preparing them, telling them, being honest about it, but the purpose about it. So we talked about that. Uh, we talked about that it is to try you. It's not a maybe. It's not a it, it may, it, but it will happen. It's going to happen. We looked at the text uh, that supported that, and uh, and then he tells us uh, if you can believe it that we are to rejoice. 
And we talked about that, that it's not to re- that we're rejoicing in the suffering that we are, re- but we rejoice that we are partakers uh, with Christ in the suffering. And that, that suffering identifies us with our Lord and Savior. And it gives evidence that we are His. And uh, it should be an encouragement to us. Uh, and, and, it, and we talked about living in union with Christ. We're not just living in union with his death and resurrection. We live in union with his life. And as he suffered and learned obedience in his life through suffering, so we as people are to do the same thing. And, and remember what I said. I, I said that uh, the suffering is not a threat to our spiritual life, but it is a pledge of the reality uh, that we are unified with Christ and it authenticates uh, the reality of who we are in Christ and it anticipates future glories with him. If we suffer with him, we are also going to reign with him and rejoice with him. So uh, as I finished last week, I think that was the last point I talked about. Uh, and I think we were very encouraged by this text is, is why the Holy Spirit wrote us wrote it to encourage us. Now I want to look at verse, as we get to today's study, uh, verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, blessed are you. The word insulted uh, is, is speaking of a verbal slander. It is being defamed. It is being falsely accused. Uh, it is not physical, but it's verbal. I love what Calvin said as he was explaining uh, this word defamed. He said, uh, many noble-minded, sensitive souls, there is more bitterness in being slandered and attacked viciously verbally than it would be in the loss of goods or even the agony of our suffering of our own body. I know many of you, uh, as you've told me in confidence and as we've been in home group together and many of you that aren't even in our group, uh, some of you are uh, very in tune to be people pleasers and to and to get along with all men. That's very biblical, but sometimes it is very hurtful when you are criticized for being a follower of Christ. And I know to some of you that that, that bitterness and that struggle by being verbally assaulted is even is even harder on you than it would be for someone who uh, may be more thick-skinned, who's not so particular about pleasing men. But uh, I know that some of you are in that category, and so uh, Christ would sympathize with you that when you are verbally insulted for doing good, and so. Uh, uh, that is uh, one of the things that I wanted to comment on. Uh, and so we are going to be reproached. Uh, but scripture just says, make sure the reproach is unjustified. It says, if you are insulted or reproached for being a criminal or a murderer or evildoer or even a gossip, I think it's uh, quite interesting that, that, that the Holy Spirit through Peter uh, put all those together, you would assume that being an, a uh, murderer or an evildoer would be so much uh, more uh, 
on the scale of things much more serious. But Peter just emphasized that that anything uh, that we do uh, that justifies our being slandered is wrong and we should avoid that. But he says, if you suffer as being a Christian, if you if you suffer for living righteously, if you suffer for being faithful, uh, uh, Peter says that you are blessed. I want to look at the phrase uh, for the name of Christ. What does, when it says the name of Christ, what does that infer? In Scripture, what does the name of Christ mean? Any comments? Anybody want to? I'm going to open up this for uh, for uh, participation. Uh, to uh, I'm going to uh, unmute mute you if I can. Uh, da, 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 da. uh Ask to unmute. So I'm going to unmute you. If you want to comment, when, when Scripture says, when you are insulted for the name of Christ, uh, what does that mean? And I see that some of you are still muted. If you want to uh, uh, to uh, participate, what does it mean? The name of Christ. If you are if you are insulted for the name of Christ, that being where you publicly profess your belief in Christ. Or? Okay, you publicly profess your belief in Christ. What are the implications of that phrase, name of Christ? What you said was correct, Ron. What else? Well, it also means um, everything that He is in His everything that He is. And his work and what he has done and his authority and his power and his love and grace, everything that Christ is, is his name. What That's right. it stands for. The name is, I uh, couldn't say it any better. It's his attributes. It's his inner qualities. It's his perfect righteousness. It's his holiness. It's his sovereignty. It's it's what identifies him and separates him from us. It's his holiness, his perfectness, his moral purity. Sally said that well. So we're in, if we are insulted for the name of Christ, we are being uh, identified with Christ, and we are being insulted because we are identifying with him. And what gives people such a uh, – the name of Christ implies – uh, many things. So we're insulted for the name of Christ. It is implied that Christ does not have authority, and therefore we do not have authority. Uh, scripture tells us in Second Philippians 2.10 that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is confess on earth and in heaven that Jesus is Lord, Kyrios. He's master and he's ruler over all things. So when we as Christians live the name, associate with the name, and are insulted for the name, men are implying that they reject his authority, they reject his rulership, they reject his uh, power over them, and they are insulting us because of that. And so that's what that means. And the implication is uh, that they reject who he is and who he claims to be, and they reject us because we identify with him uh, very much clearly. <clears throat> Another thing that that the name of Christ implies is that it 
it's his authority, but that when you are associated with the name of Christ, you are associated with the, with the, uh, uh, the name limits you and it glorifies him. And so, uh, uh, so we see this. So when we live the name, the implication of that is that he is being glorified and that man is being limited. Uh, men do not want to be limited. Uh, this says there's an exclusiveness to the name and that there's no other power but the name. There's no mediator but between God and men but the name and the man, Jesus Christ. So when we live the name, we're blasphemed for the name because the name implies authority. It implies exclusiveness and it limits men and it exalts Christ. So I think as I was trying to think through this, and uh, there are many verses that will dovetail this and support this. I've already quoted one that every name, the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow and confess that he's curious, that he's Lord and master. Uh, many others. Let's look at the. Uh, Don, can I, yes, can I say something? You know where it says for the name of Christ? Yes. Doesn't the word for kind of indicate that there's a, an act of submission to Christ? You're doing it absolutely. for him? We are as a, because of the name, because we are submitting. Yes, it absolutely does, Sheila. And as a result, if you're displaying that righteousness, you will be persecuted, you know, absolutely. by the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. Look at... Uh, Acts chapter 4. We're going to just spend a little a second here in Acts chapter 4. We're aware of this. The Holy Spirit has come. The church has been formed. And then we have the preaching of the, uh, of the gospel as the apostles are filled with the Spirit. We see Peter and John have been arrested. And, and we see this uh, insulting, being insulted for the name. And we sort of see in scripture everything that Peter uh, mentions. It's as if it, it is autobiographical as the Holy Spirit brings us to his mind. Uh, but, but, uh, I talked about the exclusiveness and the, in the submission to, but just look at the, uh, Acts chapter four. Uh, just I'll start with four and then I'm going to, I'll tell you where I am. Four, one. Uh, this is Peter and John speaking as they spoke to the, the leaders of that day, the priests and the Sanhedrin and the Sadducees. Uh, the, the leaders are disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Of course, they, they seized them, wanted to take hold of them. Uh, and then notice what Peter says in verse 8. I love this from a from a, a man who is afraid of, uh, of, of ladies and denies Christ, but as the Holy Spirit empowers him and fills him, we see the significant change in his uh, boldness and his fervor for Christ. Look at verse 8. Peter said he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, and by what means he's been made well, let it be known to you and all the people of Israel by, by the name of Jesus Christ, 
which is exactly what Sally said, all that he is and all that he claims to be, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. This is a stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone, and there is salvation in no other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by what we must be saved. In verse 13, they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men. They marveled and realized that they had been with Jesus. And so we see this boldness, and we see the uh, the the uh, the testimony of Christ and to Christ. That's just an example of being insulted because you are claiming submission to, you are partaker with, and you are uplifting the name of Christ, and you are sh- saying that He is exclusive and that He's the way, the truth, and the life. So, uh, remember Romans chapter ten that Terry uh, preached on recently that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth that Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart uh, you confess, and with the mouth, with the heart you believe, and with the mouth you confess, right? So we understand the, the, the importance of the name. And this is just a, uh, a reiteration that the name is going to create conflict with mm-hmm. us and the world. Remember what it says in mm-hmm. Matthew mm-hmm. chapter 10. If you'll turn with me to Matthew 10, Jesus speaking uh, to his disciples, of course, speaking to us, his church, uh, 2,000 mm-hmm. years later. Uh, Matthew chapter 10, uh, we could read a bunch of this, but uh, let's look at 10. Uh, let's start at verse, uh, 22, 10, 22, uh, of Matthew. And you shall be hated by all, what does it say? For my name's sake, you are associating with me and who I am. And so you are going to be hated. Verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher. A servant is not above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. Mm -hmm. If they've called the master of the house the devil, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore, don't fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be made known. And And go to verse 34. I didn't come to bring peace on earth. I came to not bring peace, but a sword. I've come to set man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And he who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. And uh, as we get more into this text, that verse will be supportive of of the text when we get to that point. So we're going to be insulted because of the name of Christ, and uh, and so we understand why. It says you're blessed. 
that means we're graced by God. We, we have the joyful recognition of spiritual prosperity. This, this gives the evidence that we are His when we are insulted for His name and we're not considerate an astonishment. It's not to be considered a disappointment or discouraged, but it's a badge of honor that we would be cons- insulted because we love Christ and we live like Christ and we act like Christ. And so he tells us, uh, you are blessed. Uh, it just is a, uh, supports the uh, Sermon on the Mount. Uh, when Jesus said in Matthew uh, chapter 5, uh, verse uh 11, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all things of evil against you falsely. That supports you not, you're to suffer as a Christian and not as an evildoer. For my sake, rejoice and be exceedingly glad and great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were for you. So Peter says, you're blessed if you are insulted for the high name of Christ. So be encouraged. He not only says you're blessed, but he look what he says. He does a double whammy. He does a double characteristic of the Holy Spirit. Look what he says. He says, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And so that is a further encouragement. As, as Hebert says, the spirit of glory is God's special gift to those who endure to suffer for him. And it says the spirit bestows the glory that related to the sufferings of Christ. And God, who sent his son, sends the spirit of God on those who suffer is loyal followers. So Peter not only says we're blessed, but he, he says the spirit of God and the spirit of the Holy Spirit rests on you. And to define this, I, I can't think of a better way to define what I just said. Let's look at Acts and let's look at the, at the, uh, martyrdom of Stephen and look at how the Spirit of God and the Spirit of the Holy Spirit rested on him as a special blessing to him as he went through martyrdom. Let's look at Acts uh, chapter 6. Uh, it is recorded in chapter 7, the martyrdom, but I want to look at about the last verse of, of Acts 6. As he was being accused of blasphemy, uh, against the nation of Israel because of his rebuke of the leaders. Uh, uh, mm. Look at 6.8. Stephen, full of faith and power. Look at verse 10. They were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Look at mm. verse 14. For we've heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the place. This is a temple and change the customs which Moses delivered, and all who sat on the council looked at him steadfastly, look at this, and saw his face as the face of an angel. So we see the Spirit of God resting on him and preparing him for the martyrdom. Uh, Go through the sermon. Now look at the end of the sermon after he's preached, uh, and just look at this uh, graciousness of God as Peter, as uh, Stephen is about to be martyred, look at verse 54. 
Uh, he's he's uh, he's preached boldly. He's called him stiff-necked, uncircumcised, <laughs> resistance of the spirit. Just been very blunt with them. Look at verse 54, chapter 7. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. And he, being full of the spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see the heavens open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. So we see this example of the spirit of God and the spirit of the Holy Spirit resting on those who are being insulted for the name of Jesus Christ. I don't think there's a better way to define that, but you just to see it in scripture as it plays out. Any, any comments or questions about uh, this part of the section of Scripture, uh, and then I want to really emphasize uh, another couple of verses here. Any comments about what I've just said? If not, Don, yes, ma'am. Could you explain uh, what it really means to have someone gnash at you with your with their teeth? Well, that's a heck of a good question, and uh, uh, I see, I don't know how to define it, uh, it's a, uh, it's a, I, when I see someone gnashing their teeth, I see a, an obvious facial grinding of the teeth in, in, a, in an internal rage against me. I don't know if you've ever seen that, if you've experienced, have you ever been in a volatile conversation with someone when you're sharing the truth of God to them and they look and they got this look and they just become enraged when you tell them uh, who they are without Christ? Uh, if you haven't seen that, I don't know how, that's a great question. Does anybody have anything to ask, to offer about Sally's question? What does it mean to gnash at the teeth? Uh, does Terry, you have anything to offer about that? I, I don't know the Hebrew, I don't know the Greek word. Uh, so, but it's, uh, it's something that is, is probably pretty rare for us as believers today. Uh, any comments about that to support, uh, her question? You will know it when it happens to you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I have had it happen to me. I have too. I have too. <laughs> And as you can just see, the countenance on their face changes towards you. They are enraged towards you. Uh, it looks like they want to do you some kind of harm. And it's just a, like Russell said, unless you've seen it, uh, uh, it's hard to describe, but it is very obvious what they're thinking towards you. And a terrible answer. I'm sorry, Sally, but uh, uh, that's the best I got. Terry, do you have do you have an idea about that that you can add? Yeah, I'm just pulling up my uh, New Testament here, and it appears that that's a um, a one time use of that verb in the New Testament. Okay, I'm seeing it correctly. Um, so um, one commentator says it it has um, the very thing that Don talks about that it's just violent rage. Okay. So you just someone that's, I'd say, out of control with their rage, um, and uh, the 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 gnashing is the idea that that they've they've ground ground their teeth and they're just 
they're trying to hold it back and they can't. And so they're, they're making even these guttural noises um, and grinding their teeth in uncontrolled rage at, at the yeah, it's just And it's also, you can see this, it's the part of that is they're cut to the heart. It may be a work of God's spirit. It may be their consciences, whatever is the cause of that violent rage. We see they're, they're cut to the heart and, and we must understand that that's God's work of God's spirit. And, uh, and we don't understand how the work of the spirit would lead to his martyrdom, but that was in his purposes. And uh, we know that Saul was con- uh, consenting to that, and and uh, God used it gloriously for uh, in Paul's uh, as as God changed Paul. So uh, good questions, uh, Don. Yes, Don. Before you move on, that last part of seven, though, when when uh, Stephen gave and said he looked to the heavens and saw the Son of God standing. I never saw that, but I know that when you stand in the face of criticism to the scriptures and God tells you in your heart and mind that you really have that, that promise, it was there regardless of what they said or anything else or what they did to you. And uh, I've experienced that a couple of times in a real, real way. And I, I got a lot of, warmth from this scripture at that time and I just uh, uh, it's a good one to turn to when you really are faced with it you know you may not be put to death but you, uh, you're you suffering even in the torment of people uh, just uh, an a- affirmation of his love and support of you during the trial absolutely uh, that's a good comment Dwayne uh, verse 17 For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Verse 18, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, what is going to happen to the ungodly and where will the sinner appear? So we see this. And uh, if you're if you're taking notes, this is point F. This is the exercise of God's judgment and suffering. First thing we see, uh, uh, there's a season for the time has come in God's providential will and in his ordaining of events in each one of our lives. There is a season that each one of us, we're going to go through particular uh, trials and trouble uh, for the faith. And uh, Peter is just reminding the church Reminding to these who are in Nero's, within Nero's influence that their time is now. It is a purposeful time. It is an ordained time. It is a divine time. So all of us are going to have this particular season in our life. Uh, we just need to be aware of it. Uh, and then when it says, uh, the time has come for judgment to begin, this, this is given a divine aspect to this verse. Uh, uh, God is a holy God. God is infinitely holy. He cannot and he will not condone sin, even in his own family. So this verse is going to tell us that there is a divine time. It's a purposeful time. God is sovereign in the time. There is an aspect of his uh, sovereignty in it. And because he is a holy God, 
He does not condone any type of sin in his people or in the unrighteous. And he is going to appropriately make it right. And, but in this word, uh, this word for judgment to begin, judgment has several components. One can be penal judgment. Uh, we understand that God is holy, and because he's holy and just, he will and has to punish sin, and he will bring penal judgment to sin that is not propitiated and expiated by the blood of Jesus Christ. So in one phrase, this means that God is holy, and he will bring penal judgment against sin. But in this text, the word judgment is not penal judgment. It is, it is more in the line with corrective judgment. It is not, uh, uh there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Uh, this is not that word con- uh, condemnation. It's more of corrective, chastening, uh, punishment for sin for the purpose of restoration. That's good. So, uh, literally, it means that there is a time in God's providence, because he is holy, that he is going to divinely chasten his people for the purpose of correcting them. And it starts at the house of God. Now, that is throughout the scripture. It teaches us that there is an order to judgment. God, first of all, is going to deal with his people, and he's going to deal with us in love to correct us. And so we see that in all throughout Scripture. Let me uh, look at uh, uh, some of these uh, illustrations. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah chapter 10, as we look at this order, that there's an order to judgment, and it is going to, and it always will begin with God's people because he's holy. And uh, even if we are in Christ and the penal judgment has been absorbed by Christ on our behalf for us, there is still a corrective judgment as God is bringing us into conformity to his son. He is going to, he promises to lovingly chasten us. And we see that its order has to be this way. Look at chapter Isaiah chapter 10. As we just see this order of things, this is going to be God's uh, declaration against his people who are not right with him, who have abandoned them. Then you're going to see that he turns against the enemy, the unrighteous Assyrians. And then he's going to sum it up and say that there is a order to this, uh, to his corrective work. We see this. Look at Isaiah chapter 10. Uh, verse 1, woe to those who decree unrighteous decrees and who write misfortunes when they have prescribed to rob the needy of justice and to take what is right from the people, from the poor of my people. So this is the nation of Israel that not treating their own people right. There's injustice. And so he's saying there's going to be judgment for that. And then he, uh, look at verse 3, what will you do in the day of punishment, in the desolations which is going to come from afar? And then he talks about uh, the nation of of Assyria. He says, I'm going to judge them. Uh, Verse 6, I'm going to send against Assyria an ungodly nation, against the people of my wrath. And he says, I'm going to use the Assyrians to bring judgment against my people. But look at the summation of it in verse 12. 
Therefore, it shall come to pass when the Lord has performed all his work on Mount Zion and at Jerusalem. That's his people. He's going to start there. He's performed that work that he will then say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Syria. So I'm going to start with my people. I'm going to judge them in a corrective way. But then I'm going to turn and I'm going to judge the unrighteous king. And that and that correction and that judgment will be penal. And it will not be restorative, but it will be as a judgment against his behavior. That goes all throughout the scripture. Uh, you see that also in Jeremiah. If you look at Jeremiah 25, there's an order to God's judgment. It begins with God's people, and it is different from the judgment against the unrighteous. If you look at uh, 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 Jeremiah 25, verse 29, this is under the topic, or he's fixing to uh, bring his people into 70 years of captivity in Babylon. Uh, for their sin, look at uh, 2529 of uh, Jeremiah. For behold, I begin to bring calamity on this city, which is called by my name. Okay, so he starts with his people. And should you be utterly unpunished, you shall not be unpunished, for I will call for a sword on all the inhabitants of the earth. So first I'm going to start with my people. Uh, you should not, you, you will not be unpunished and then I, then I'm going to bring penal judgment and a sword, death and destruction on the inhabitants of the earth and that would be the unsaved, the ungodly, the unrighteous. So I could go many other examples, but, uh, the divine aspect of this is judgment begins at God's house. Uh, but the, the, the judgment, uh, you're familiar with Hebrews 12, it's temporary. It's purposeful. It's a demonstration of love. It's an evidence that we're his. And the purpose of it is to bring us back to himself and to edify us and to glorify himself. And you can read about that in Hebrews uh, chapter 12. Uh, you're very familiar with that. Uh, Hebert said it's, it was appropriate season for God to deal in judgment with his people. The chastening discipline uh, should be understood in light of coming judgment, which is going to be penal and final to the ungodly. And uh, Augustine said, if the sons are chastened, uh, what's going to happen to the most malicious slaves and what should they expect? So judgment begins at his house, at his people. It is corrected, but then it's going to be a premonitory. It's going to be a, a premonition. It's going to be an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And so we see that there's an order and there's a divine aspect to it. Uh, so we understand uh, God's purpose in these things. Now it says, uh, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Uh, that phrase, don't obey the gospel, not only when we see that, it, we, first of all, we see that it's the gospel of God, that it's God's gospel. God is the, uh, is the uh, originator of it. It's in his purpose. It is good news for those who come to Christ and will repent and turn to him. So it's his gospel. We understand that salvation is of the Lord, Jonah said, and Paul repeated that phrase. Jonah said, salvation is of the Lord. So 
So when Peter says it's the gospel of God, we understand it's his authority, it's his power. It came from his mind, and it is how he reconciles men to himself through the gospel. But this, when it says don't obey the gospel, not only did they refuse the good news of Christ, but it literally means that they refused to obey the, the gospel truth, and their life of activity demonstrates that they don't obey the gospel. They do not believe the gospel. They do not believe they need the gospel, and they love their sin. They love to do what they do by nature, and they uh, have no desire to turn and repent and obey the gospel of God. So God says because of that, that he is going to bring a penal judgment to them. And, and uh, so we understand that. Now, verse 18, I don't have a lot of time. Uh, I don't know how this time goes so fast, but uh, the righteous are scarcely saved. Uh, this phrase has given uh, a lot of people a lot of heartburn. Verse 18, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? As I normally do, let's teach this from the negative. What does the phrase, if the righteous are scarcely saved, mean? It doesn't mean this. If you're writing this down, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, it doesn't, doesn't, doesn't mean this. It doesn't imply uh, whether or not we're going to be saved. This phrase doesn't say there's a great spiritual battle going on, and it is uh, it is uncertain whether God will win or man will win or Satan will win. So this is not implying that there's any doubt as to the outcome of anything. Uh, this does not imply that whatsoever. Uh, uh, it doesn't imply that God is not able to utterly save his people. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that that we merit salvation by enduring. Uh, the righteous will endure, but that is because God is preserving them and in, enabling them to persevere. But this phrase doesn't mean there's any doubt. It doesn't mean that God is insufficient or that his arm is not able to save or if there's any limitations to him. It doesn't mean that... Uh, our enduring uh, is merits our salvation. It simply means this. Put an asterisk beside it if you write in your Bible. It literally simply means that the Christian walk is arduous and it is difficult in this life. It is severe. Scripture says it's narrow and it is difficult and few find it. It literally means that from a human perspective, no one will be saved. No one will be able to do, endure. No one is able uh, of his own will and of his own abilities and his own merit uh, to obtain salvation because the way is so difficult. We have so many uh, uh difficulties before us. We have the devil. We have our human nature. We have the world system and the culture. So from a human point of view, uh, we cannot save ourselves and few, but it literally emphasizing that it's only Christ and his righteousness that can sustain us. 
And it, because of God's covenant to his people, we will be made to sustain, be sustained, and he will finish the work he's begun in us. Everybody understand that? From a human point, it's not doable because of the difficulties, because of the headwinds, and we understand that, that we can't do this. And it literally means that it's only Christ, it's only his righteousness, it's only his work in us that's going to cause us to be saved and that we cannot save ourselves, uh, but he must do it. Does everybody understand what that means? It's him. It's all about him. It's not about us. We can't. He can. That's um, what that verse means. Yes, ma'am. I think the problem is, like in the New King James, the word is can scarcely be saved. And so for the believer to look at that, they think, oh, my gosh, I'm just barely in. And yet we know that we have a full salvation, a completed salvation. Yeah. So when, you know, Satan can take you, when you look at a word like scarcely, yes. well, you know, Sally, you're barely in there. Yes. You know, and so we need to be careful there. That word, you know, I look at that and think, wow, I'm scarcely there. That's right. That's yeah. right. It doesn't apply God's that he's limited, that his power is thwarted, but it encourages to know that Christ will and he has and uh, we will be brought through this, but we cannot do it. And there's just a multitude of verses that support this. Uh, we are all familiar with, uh, uh, let me just, uh, uh, give us this beautiful note of encouragement, uh, from Romans eight. Yeah. Uh, Romans eight. Look at verse 18. This is going to sum up what we've talked about in this suffering. Uh, Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So take heart, believers, uh, as Peter encouraged his people, as Paul encouraged the mm -hmm. church at Rome. What we're going through is not worthy to be compared with the glory which will be revealed in us. When we see Christ face to face for the ages to come, he's going to show us his grace in Christ. And so uh, we're not going to lose salvation uh, in that sense. We're not. Uh, he is not going to barely get us through. We have been saved and we will be saved and we're being saved. So all tenses. Uh, and just so is uh, to finish, finish this verse 31 of the great book of Romans 8. Uh, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies, who condemns. Christ died and furthermore is risen at the right hand of God who makes intercession for us. Who's going to separate us from the love of God in Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sore? Uh, no. Yet in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor power, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. That's our uh, that's our great hope. 
It's a sure and steadfast hope, but uh, we will finally forever be saved, and uh, we can trust him for that uh, during the persecution. So I just want to end with that. I want to give you, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this uh, group or this song. It's been a it's been a lyric that I have been uh, contemplating over the last uh, couple of weeks. And I don't know if you know the song, uh, It's Almost Home by Mercy Me. just want to read you a couple of these lyrics. Uh, uh, are you disappointed? Are you desperate for help? You know what it's like to be tired and only a shell of yourself. Uh, when you start to believe you don't have what it takes because it's all you can do just to move, much less finish the race, don't forget what lies ahead. Almost home, brother. It won't be long. Soon all your burdens will be gone. With all your strength, hold up your head. Keep pressing on. We are almost home. This road will be hard, but we win in the end simply because of Jesus in us. It's not if, but when. So take joy in the journey. Even when it feels long, find strength in each step, knowing heaven is cheering you on. So uh, a good lyric to that. We know that there is, we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, and we're to endure, and we're to look to Jesus. So I just want to encourage you, brothers, uh, because of the fiery trials, uh, and I just want to encourage you in the faith as, as that encourages me. Uh, any comments uh, or, or uh, questions or anything to add to that, uh, to this lesson? We thank you for the encouragement your teaching gives all of us. Thank you for all your work. We well, appreciate it so much. Thank you. Uh, I have one bit of business. Those of you can stay for five minutes. Uh, we have opened up Sunday school. Uh, if you'd like, uh, we as elders met and, uh, if you want to meet in public, now we, we can meet at the church. Uh, we, we still will distance. We'll still wear masks getting to the class. And then once we're in class, uh, so if you want to meet, uh, we can do that. It is up to you. If you cannot meet because of, uh, of your health or because, uh, of something you're not comfortable with yet, I will still live stream. So, uh, uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to call you guys this week. And if you want to meet, uh, we can meet. Uh, but if you want to keep it as it is, you tell me this and we'll do that. But if you want to meet and if you don't want to meet, uh, let me know. And if, if the majority want to meet, we'll find a way to meet, and then we'll live stream for those of you who cannot. So I will be calling you, or you can uh, you can uh, email me on the uh, the website uh, if you want to do that. Uh, all of us, we have a website. If you want to let me know your point of view and what you want to do, uh, we want everybody to to worship. Uh, how you want to worship as we're opening things up. So uh, I will be in contact with you or you contact me and uh, we will do what you guys want to do. Okay. So uh, if you want to meet, let me know. And if you can't, we'll, we will live stream it. And so you will all be able to participate and uh, we'll do that this week. And we can either do it next Sunday or the f- week after that, however you want to do it. So you guys let me know and we will make it happen. Let me pray. Father, thank you.
for trouble. We rejoice in it because we know that we are partakers of your suffering. We don't rejoice in the pain, but we rejoice in the purpose. And we are encouraged that you are working your grace in us. And you are conforming us and making us like your dear son. So give us strength in the journey. Help us to be joyful in the trouble. And help us to be encouraged that our brothers and sisters are suffering like matter and have in the past and will in the future. And we thank you for the fact that the present sufferings are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us in our glorified bodies forever present with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your mercies and your grace. They are renewed every morning because you are faithful. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.